Hello and welcome to Breaking Legal Glass Ceilings and to a voice that you've probably not heard before. I'm Amy Jansen and I'm not usually in front of the microphone and instead am the show's producer. Today, though, I thought we would turn the tables and speak to someone who is more often heard asking the questions and answering them, at least on this show, but whose own journey to the law is equally fascinating. So it brings me great pleasure to introduce you to our guest for the day, David Locke KC. David, hi, welcome to your own show. (laughs) Thanks, Amy. I have to say you are a fantastically brilliant producer of this show. And you do all the hard work behind the scenes that makes the interviews work. Oh, but it feels very funny being on the other end of the system (laughs) and being interviewed rather than asking the questions. Ah, well, I think it's only fair, right? I think there is a there's some justice in that. (laughs) Yeah. David, I'd like to start by asking why was it important for you that we did breaking legal glass ceilings? Why was this podcast something that you felt needed to be out there? Well, that's not a straightforward question to answer. It comes from a number of different strands. Um, As you know, in my career, I've been involved as an individual barrister, but I've also been involved in policy issues as a member of parliament and a minister. And I've, I've seen the legal profession from a number of different angles. And it always struck me that the people at the top have spent 30 years in a reasonably well-paid, often very well-paid profession. And they get used to the lifestyle of being a high-pressure, high-paid professional. And so it looks like, to the outside world, that's where they started in life. That's what they've always done. Of course, it's not true. A lot of very highly regarded lawyers started life in a whole variety of different places, and merged into this lifestyle of being high-pressure, high-paid lawyers as they became successful. Um, And it seemed to me that there were an awful lot of people in the law who were moderately competent and moderately talented, but had all the right connections, the right accent, the right background, and smoothed their way into a profession. And there was also quite a lot of other people who didn't have the background, didn't have the connections, but were much more talented, much more committed, and tended to rise to the top of the profession. And of course, there were some people from a legal background who are, who are outstanding lawyers in their own right and would have made it regardless of the background. But quite a lot of the people who are successful lawyers had nothing to do with law and came into it almost by chance. And it seemed to me quite important to say to aspiring lawyers and have a platform to say to aspiring lawyers, look, what you see in lawyers aged 35, 40, 50, or even 60, where it looks like they've always been a member of of that class, they've always spoken in that way, is not actually true. We come from a huge variety of backgrounds. Talent will out or should out. And if you've got talent, these are the routes you could follow to to realise your dreams. And don't be put off by the fact that you don't necessarily speak like most lawyers who are successful do at the moment. You don't think like most lawyers because we didn't either when we were at your stage. It's a very long answer, but the purpose of the podcast is egalitarianism. It's to try and show that the law is not a closed shop. It genuinely is open to anyone with talent and commitment, or it should be. 
and certainly from the guests that we've spoken to, those differences are incredibly valuable for them. I agree. We've heard some remarkable stories of people overcoming very, very substantial limitations that attempted to be put on them in their early life and say, no, I'm not going to be bound by your views of my limits. This is what I strive to do. This is what, what I can become. This will be me. And if I work hard enough at it, and I've got enough talent, I will become it. And we see people who have triumphed against the odds. Now, of course, those odds inevitably mean there are a lot of people who aspire to be successful lawyers and never make it. I accept that. But there are many who are not from families where daddy was a judge, uncle was a solicitor, or where they've grown up in a professional household where saying, uh, you know, I fancy being a barrister was not treated as, as, as equivalent to saying I want to be an astronaut. Yes. What was your background then? Because I realised that you haven't got a daddy who's a judge. No, I, I, my father was an engineer, an engineer who went to night school to learn engineering, stuck at it uh, over a long time and became a research engineer, a very successful one. But I went to an ordinary state school, a series of ordinary state schools. I was lucky enough to go to Cambridge. I went up to read engineering. Um, I changed courses and graduated in theology and philosophy, somewhat surprisingly, but there's a story behind that, but that's for another day. <laughs> um, I then went into industry, and after about a year, I decided that I really fancied being a lawyer. And there were a whole series of influences of that. Partly it was political, partly it was Rumpole, partly it was a whole bunch of other things. Rumpole? Rumpole of the Bailey was a fantastic <laughs> role model for those of us who essentially wanted to tweak the establishment's tail and defend those whose rights were being trampled upon. And that's how I started becoming a lawyer. And of course, I then went to Central London Polytechnic, did the conversion course did my bar finals, was lucky enough to get pupillage, and off I went. Something that we, again, hear from our guests is that getting pupillage was, is a real challenge. Was that something that you experienced as well? Well, it was a different world back in 1985. Right, okay. Um, pupils weren't paid for a start. Secondly, many, many more pupils were taken on, and the real competition in those days was not getting pupillage, it was getting tenancy after you got pupillage because a big set would recruit half a dozen, eight pupils, but then just take one on. So in those days, the challenge happened, the, um, the, the blockage happened at the end of pupillage. There were very large numbers of people who did pupillage and then were unsuccessful in getting a tenancy. So they didn't have a place to start their careers. So I had to go off and look for something else to do. And I remember when I was a student, doing pupillage, and I was chair of the Gray's Inn Student Society. And we put a motion to Gray's Inn to try and encourage the bar to pay pupils. And it was treated with a combination of horror and derision. The idea that you would pay pupils, that, that barristers' earnings should be used to pay pupils, received an incredibly strong adverse reaction. And of course, now it's a disciplinary offence to not to pay a pupil. And there's enormous competition for the best pupils at very substantial salaries. But in those days, the fact they didn't pay pupils meant that 
that was another blockage to the law because you were expected to work essentially for nothing. I, I was very fortunate. I was married by that point. My wife was a junior hospital doctor. So two of us lived on, on an entry-level doctor's salary, which was just about okay. But without her support, I'd never have done pupillage. Goodness. So if I remember rightly, I'm sure you mentioned something about disappearing off to the States instead of starting life as a barrister. Am I right in remembering that? Oh, yes, that's... Um... That's, I'm afraid that's always that's all true. I, I was due to start a pupillage, and I got the opportunity to be one of the two members of the British student debating team going around the States. And the, the English speaking union ran a competition each year to pick the best team to go on this prestigious tour. And essentially, you got flown to the States, then you went, we did 30 universities in 60 days. So we did a debate air travel, landing, being sort of an entertained debate. So we had alternative days of debate or travel. And it was, you know, for two months, it was pretty full on and and great fun. Anyway, what happened was I, I got to the final with Julian, my colleague, and we did the debate at the English speaking union house. And I, there was, there was an opposite team because there were two in the final debate and the judges went away for a long time. And then they, they came back and they said to me and to one of the person from the other team, go and sit in a room for 10 minutes and tell us whether you can stand each other for two months, because what we want to do is pick one from each team. And we thought, right. And Mike, who's been a friend of mine for 30 years, we sat and we said, well, putting it bluntly, when we get on with each other. We're both members of the Labour Party, as it turns out. We have quite a lot in common. We're both law students. We said, well, if we say yes, we'll have a go we're 100% chance of going. If we say no, we've each got a 50% chance because they'll we'll pick one, one team or the other team. So frankly, what have we got to lose? So we both said yes to the irritation of our debating partners. Oh, I bet that didn't earn you any points. <laughs> well, no, I put us in a very difficult position, but it seemed to me if that's what they wanted, they were the English speaking union, they were, they were doing the choosing. If that's what they chose, we'll have to go along with it. Yeah, I then spent two months attempting to not suffer liver failure as we went round <laughs> America, and we had a fantastic time. And as I say, Mike, who's now a silk in Australia doing intellectual property work, has been a mate of mine for thirty years. So a worthwhile trip. And and uh, your health concerns aside, I imagine that two months of incredibly focused debating would have been a useful thing moving into practicing as a barrister. Yeah, I don't think it did any harm. But debating and legal practice are phenomenally different. And, oh, am I getting seduced uh, by TV shows and, and flashy closing arguments? Yeah, well, I can tell you they're very different. Uh, but at the margins, it was kind of useful. Yeah. Lovely. So once you got back, recovered from that hangover, you started practice as barrister. Tell me a bit about the the sort of early years. Well, Bernie's dad, my wife's dad, was a barrister and he strongly recommended I should practice outside London. So we went to Birmingham. I got taken on as a tenant and I built a, a practice assisted by the clerks doing everything. I did criminal trials. I did running down actions motor crashes, a bit of insolvency, quite a lot of employment, commercial work, and just did everything and really enjoyed it. And it was busy. I was in court virtually every day, meeting new clients, 
putting them in the witness box, cross-examining, dealing with grumpy judges, dealing with delightful judges, occasional trips to the Court of Appeal or the High Court, which were terrifying, but doing everything from prosecuting the list in Dudley Magistrates Court for the CPS through to uh, appearing in employment tribunals and doing insolvency appeals. Uh, and it was a great training, frankly. Well, I imagine that doing a little bit of everything allowed you to explore which parts of the law interested you. I don't know, am I, am I right in thinking that that would offer you the ability to choose where you could specialise? Yeah, I did, for example, an awful lot of housing cases. And one of our first guests, probably our very first guest on this, this show was Rosalind Kilbane. Uh, yeah, from the right. Community Law Partnership, and she and I did endless cases where we represented tenants who had had the rough end of repairing obligations or unlawful evictions, and the, the landlords couldn't believe that the tenants had the, the competence and audacity to sue them. I mean, to some extent, it was like shooting fish in a barrel, because once you got into court, you know, the, the, the walls were always damp, the repairing covenants were never complied with, the requirements for notice for a lawful eviction and obtaining a court order were never complied with. So in the end, what happened was that we had a very good success rate and felt like we were doing some good for the time because we were taking, for, for somebody who's a tenant in a house with damp, getting three, four, five thousand pounds in damages in those days was a, was a fortune, was, was life-changing sums of money particularly if the proceedings started at a point when the tenant thought they were going to be evicted, as many of them did. In 1995, you took a step out of practising law to serve as a councillor, and, and then you moved on to Parliament. This comes back to Rumpold. So you are, you've gone from working with a lot of housing cases and advocating for people there. And why did you choose to move into politics? Well, it's going to sound very naive, and and to some extent, it. I think I think naivety is no, no bad thing. As a lawyer, you work within the four corners of the law as defined by Parliament, and the balance of interests between landlords and tenants, employers, employees, in whatever circumstance, is set by the framework of laws. So, if you think, and of course, by 1997, we'd had a Conservative government for the previous 18 years that in fact the balance needs to be adjusted, that's your personal commitment. And for example, you want to, you feel that there should be a national minimum wage, there should be greater transparency of government through the Freedom of Information Act, that the only way of making a difference is politics, because in the end, politicians write the rules. They write the balance. They define where the balance is struck between landlords and tenants, between employers and employees. And they set the framework that the lawyers have to work within. And okay, I'm very careful what I say now, because of course I'm, I, I sit as a judge. And I completely respect whatever parliament decides, because parliament's got the democratic mandate to set that balance. But if you want to change the balance, because we're looking back to 97 here, then the only way of getting involved in change is to get involved in politics. Very, very true. After your time in Parliament, what happened with your legal career? Well, my legal career was effectively on hold whilst I was an MP. I wasn't practising. I became a Justice Minister, so I was involved in the law, but not as part of a legal career. When I left Parliament in 2001, 
I went back to practice to an extent, but I was still keeping a foot in the public body pool and was appointed to be chair of the National Crime Squad of the National Crime Intelligence Service, which took up most of my time. And it wasn't really until about 2003 that I decided that I really wanted to go back to being a full-time lawyer because I didn't want to go back into parliament. And at that point, Mills and Reeve, the uh, national law firm came knocking and invited me to come and lead their healthcare team, which was a bit of a risk on both sides because I knew nothing about healthcare and they knew precious little about me. Mostly they didn't know that I knew nothing about healthcare. And so I learned healthcare, led a team of 90 lawyers the next four years. You have talked a bit about imposter syndrome during our previous conversations, and that must have been rampant for the first little while at Mills and Reeves. Oh, throughout. <laughs> I sat down and read a book by Kennedy and Grubb on medical law. I sat down, it's about a thousand pages, and I read it over the summer. Started in October. Uh, that was in 2003. By the time we get to 2009, I'm writing one of the chapters for it. And that sort of shows you the progression. It's a small world, very interesting world. But Mills were evacted for about 100, and then we expanded quite considerably. And in the end, I think it was about 150 NHS bodies, not the only lawyers who acted for them, but we did a lot of work and we, we expanded the practice considerably. And it, it's just fascinating trying to assist NHS bodies in a really, really difficult and complex legal environment where the resources available to them were never sufficient to discharge all the legal obligations that they had on them. And therefore, they were continually having to balance. And we helped them try and fit the balance in a way that provided least challenge, as well as buying their selling land for them, managing their employee relationships, doing a lot of corporate stuff for them, because these are major companies and, and doing everything else that any form of substantial public body has to do. So an incredibly far-reaching ask. It felt like it, but one of the things about being a head of department is that you notionally supervise a whole group of people who are incredibly talented and are doing things you don't understand. So I didn't understand about conveyancing. I didn't understand about intellectual property rights. I knew quite a lot about consent to treatment and judicial review, but I didn't know very much about the process by which consultants were, were sacked if they were incompetent. And I just had to rely and successfully relied on, on the skill and, and expertise of all sorts of people who were notionally reporting to me, but I didn't, I couldn't do their jobs and had great respect for them. And the law is incredibly diverse and managing them sometimes that felt like herding cats, but incredibly interesting, talented and likable cats, but cats nonetheless. <laughs> So I know that you then moved to Landmark Chambers, which is where you are now, to specialise in NHS law. Is your time at Mills and Reeve, is that where that interest came from? Yes, I, I mean, undoubtedly, that's right. And a friend of mine, uh, Nagina Kalik, now Nagina Kalik, King's Council, came from Chambers to Mills and Reeve, in essentially to learn the business. And then the two of us left and we went to uh, number five chambers, which is a big national chambers. Now, neither of us are there now, but I have fond memories of my time at number five. And I was there until 2014, by which time I'd taken Silk. And 
started to work for almost all of the major law firms in this area um, and building a public law practice centered on health. And more or less, that's what I've done for the last 12 years, 14 years. Right. So you are, as you've said, a deputy high court judge. I am. I'm I'm a recorder. So I do both um, civil and crime. How does that happen? Well, you apply. There's Judicial Appointments Commission. There's a process. You put in an application. They they run a competition. They say we're looking to appoint, you know, five or ten deputy high court judges. And you put your hat in the ring and they then send you on all sorts of mysterious competence evaluations. And then you get this interview in front of a bunch of full-time judges and you either get through or you don't. And I was fortunate enough to get through. And then they send you a letter saying you're now a deputy high court judge. And almost by definition, you get put into uh, judging something that you know absolutely nothing about because the great British principle of the amateur applies. And you almost always get asked as a judge to do something, to judge something about which you know nothing. And it's back to being an imposter syndrome in, on stilts, an awful lot of hard work, lots of late nights and early mornings, lots of scratching over the books, lots of asking counsel for help. But the difference is, in the end, you've got to produce a judgment. You've got to make a decision. Somebody wins, somebody loses. That's a huge amount of responsibility, I would imagine. Or would it feel like a huge amount of responsibility? It feels like a huge responsibility. But the liberating thing is that to the judge, it doesn't matter who wins. Our only job as judges is to get it right. Well, that's not quite right. Our job is to do it correctly and make sure that the law is followed. And so the way that judges respond is is really quite important. We have to be sensitive. We have to be particularly sensitive to the person who's going to lose because they must feel they've had a fair hearing. We must listen to counsel because they know more about the case than us. They've lived with the case for months and maybe years. They've carefully crafted over every word of their skeleton argument that we sit and read in 20 minutes or half an hour. And they have to run a case, whether they personally agree with it or not. And we have to listen to witnesses. And we have to bear in mind that we don't favour people like us. All sorts of um, unintended biases we must navigate. And we must make sure that everybody has a fair hearing before us and that we apply the law as decided by Parliament with the tests as set by Parliament, regardless of whether if we were making up the law, we would have done the same thing. That's part of the job. We apply the law. And there are some things, some areas where we have a certain amount of discretion and some areas where the tests we have to apply are are decided for us. And we must faithfully apply those tests. And as the president of the Queen's Bench Division said to us in the training course recently, there's nothing wrong with a judgment being a bit boring. We, we have to do it properly. And if that means that it's sometimes a bit turgid and a bit tedious, then we're not looking for headlines. Your years of experience as a barrister, what kind of transferable skills did you have from that when moving into judging? Well, we're given one mouth and two ears, and that seemed to me to be quite important. Being an active listener is really important as a barrister and is even more important as a judge. Being a competent lawyer, technical blackletter lawyer, is really important if you're a judge, because quite often 
your job is to is, is to work out what the law is and how and what's really important under the law. And that may well not be what the parties think is important, but ultimately you've got to produce a judgment which has got to accord with the law. And empathy is really important. I think the judges need to have some understanding of quite how difficult some people's lives are and quite how challenging it is to navigate their way through life. If you're constantly short of money, constantly you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, not in, in the real sense, but you know, transferring, playing fast and loose with your cash to try and get to the end of the week and living in a society where you don't have that wealth of respect and trust for these institutions of society, that those of us who are middle class and get treated much better by those institutions have. How one sees the police, how you see social services, varies hugely, depending whether you're expecting social services to come and help you, or you're looking at social services as the enemy who are about to take away your children. I'm coming to the end of my career as a barrister. I've given notice to Chambers that I will be retiring at the end of this year after I've been a barrister since 1985, which is a few years. And I think it's been a fascinating career. It's really involved in working out where the lines of interest clash between different groups in society. So I should carry on judging, but as a barrister, as someone acting for, pay, for clients and representing them in court, my time is coming at an end. And, and doing these podcasts has reminded me how I felt when I was right at the start of my career and anxious to get going and anxious to right the wrongs of society. And of course, sometimes you get the chance to do that. And sometimes you're on the other side of the case and acting for the bad guys. But everybody deserves representation. Yes, this is so true. We have asked a number of people this question, and it's been incredible to hear how varied the advice that they have had throughout their careers is. And so, Mr. Locke, what is the greatest piece of advice that you have been given? I, I find that incredibly difficult to answer because I've had some some examples made to me. But I, I think that as a barrister, the, the most useful piece of advice is to embrace your opponents. Let me give you an example. When I was chair of grades and students, there was an issue. We had a meeting with the Board of Governors in the Court School of Law, and we raised this issue. And we had a really quite frosty, difficult exchange, a really difficult exchange, because we were convinced of something. And I think in, in hindsight, we were wrong, but it doesn't matter. The chairman of the Board of Governors was a judge, and he quite severely rebuked me as the spokesman and us as a group of four or five of us. And we left feeling that we, we got nowhere and we'd been humiliated. And the following day, an invitation arrived to go to tea with this judge. And I was kind of astounded, but I duly went and had a cup of tea with him after court. And he just sort of gently said to me that he admired the passion with which we were pursuing this cause, that whether we were right or wrong didn't matter. They had to stand their ground because they thought they were right, but keep going with the, the passion. And that was an example of embracing your opponents. 
uh, finding common ground, not leaving arguments undone. Now, that judge was Mr. Justice Bingham, who duly became Lord Bingham, president of the, of the House of Lords, and sadly died now, but one of our greatest judges of the 20th century. But it was that type of insight which showed me that it's far better to find common ground with people than to emphasise the differences. There are lessons to be learnt everywhere. And actually, the lessons that you learnt from your opponent will probably be more insightful for what you're doing than, as you say, being argumentative or against them. Or focusing on the areas we differ, yes. rather than focusing on the areas where you have in common, or reaching out to them, even where you disagree, embracing your opponents. So we've almost come to the end of this little chat, but I thought we could close with a piece of advice that you would like to pass on to our listeners and to aspiring lawyers who are listening. Yeah, I think I think the piece of advice I would pass on is, this is going to sound rather odd, is always remember it's somebody else's problem. As a lawyer, the problems of our clients are not our problems. We have challenges in our personal lives. We have relationship issues. We have to maintain professional relationships, personal relationships. We need to understand our clients, have empathy for them. But their problems are their problems. They're not our problems. And we are only able to provide dispassionate, objective, professional advice if we remember that we're paid advisors and that we don't take on the emotional mental of their case. And if the moment that we take on the emotional mental of their case and we become too identified with our clients, we lose all the benefits that they're paying for and all our professionalism. So however serious it is, and I do lots of cases about living and dying, and it doesn't get more serious than that, cases about taking children away from parents, cases about child abduction, however serious it is, however desperate the position for our clients, we are only able to do our job if we remember that it's their problem and not ours. And we're there to help, to empathise, but not to take on the emotional mantle of the client. If that sounds callous, I don't think it is. I think it's an understanding of, of the need to maintain a little bit of separation in order to be professional. Mm. And I would imagine also that in doing that, there is self-preservation that will allow one to practice for longer. There's less burnout if you're able to separate. And also, you are, I guess, protecting yourself emotionally. Yeah. Lawyers who get involved in crime, who do child abuse cases, who are, in my case, do medical treatment cases, where awful things happen and people have enormous amounts of trauma, you can end up with vicarious trauma, which is a real thing. And you can end up suffering because you're too close to too much trauma for too much of the time. And it is important to look after yourself as a lawyer, particularly if you're in those types of cases. And if you don't maintain some professional distance, then you live the emotional swings of the clients too closely and you will burn out. And that's a sad reality. So we want lawyers that are empathetic and sympathetic, but not lawyers who go on the same emotional journey as the client, because we're all human 
and that wouldn't be possible. No, very true. David, thank you very, very much for your time this afternoon. It's lovely to hear your story and your insight. And I hope that those of you listening enjoyed that as much as I did. So what I will do now is hand the microphone back to you, David, and we will go back to scheduled programming as of next week. But thank you ever so much, David, for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, Amy. And thanks for all your work on the podcast. Without we, there would be no podcast. Oh, my goodness. Well, it is a pleasure to work with you and all of our guests. So thank you.